Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, uh, my partner in crime, Bill Fleckenstein. Hello, mate. I'm happy to be here with you today, and uh, hopefully this will be an interesting conversation we're about to have. I I would be shocked if it wasn't, given who our guest is. Um, and that is, uh, for those of you who don't know, I don't know how you would, because you would have seen him on the title of the podcast, but the great Felix Zulauf is going to be joining us shortly. And Felix is, um, to my mind, one of the best macro thinkers in the world. And um, he's been around for a long time. He was a member of the Barons Roundtable, and he has his own consulting firm out of Switzerland. Um, and if you uh, if you haven't checked his work out, please, please do so, uh, felixzulaf.com. Um, Bill, I, as I said, I, I've, I've spent many hours talking to Felix in the past, and every time I do, uh, I come away with a, a wealth of new things to think about and new ways to think about things that I thought I already understood. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Me too. Well, why don't we just uh, bring him in? What do you say? Well, Felix, uh, welcome to the podcast. So good to see you again. It's been a while, my friend. My pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's um, it's a it's a very different world to the one you and I kind of were looking at the last time we had a chance to chat. Um, and really, you know, what Bill and I are trying to understand is is while the the world outside finance is is very very different in many ways, the world inside finance is boringly the same more stimulus more government programs more checks more debt um and we're just trying to get a sense of of yeah what comes next and how do we transition from here to there and and what does it look like so you've you've been someone who has been exceptionally prescient in calling uh big secular turns and so i just wondered to kick off if you if you feel as though we're approaching any of those in any particular places in the world you look at? And if so, what uh, what's on your radar? Well, I I do not know the future, of course, uh, but <laughs> I, uh, I, I think about it. I think about it. And I, I, I do believe we are trapped uh, because based on the demographics we see in the OECD countries plus China, it's impossible to create the economic growth that the system needs to function properly. Uh, for the next uh, five to 10 years or whatever. So something has to happen. Um, first, we have tried to uh, devalue currencies. We have tried to uh, bring interest rates down to zero or below by monetary stimulation. Nothing worked. Uh, we didn't have uh, the economic growth we needed. We didn't get the inflation we needed to get the um, uh, debt down relative to GDP and all that uh, sort of things. Now we bring on the fiscal side, I believe. Uh, so far, what we see on the fiscal side is gigantic, but it's not stimulus. Right. It's, uh, su- it's support, but it's not stimulus. Most people misunderstand that. Uh, the current fiscal support is simply replacing most of what has been lost in income by the corporate and the household sector. And it's not more than that. I think they have to do more than that. So today, the Financial Times uh, uh, quoted uh, the OECD and the IMF uh, calling for more fiscal stimulus to bring economic growth along. And I think they will eventually do a lot more. Um, if you do not have the fiscal stimulus that's needed, then there is no way we can save our system as it is. If they bring on stimulus as is needed to create the growth, then of course, debt, government debt explodes to even higher levels. And not only government debt explodes, uh, but also the government share of our economies. 
Um, in the second quarter for the U.S. economy, government share of GDP, nominal GDP, jumped from the mid-20s or what it was to the upper 40%. Wow. Uh, in um, in Europe, you know, the eurozone on average has about the government share of 50%. The France is very high up with a few Scandinavian countries in the 55, 58%. Uh, and, and I think that share has jumped by another 10%, at least, if not more. So that means the government share is already bigger than the private sector in those economies. And that's what I've been calling for quite some years, that we are moving into a planning economy. Uh, it's uh, government-led, it's government-manipulated, it's government-intervened, the free market is pushed out, uh, and, the planning, um, and the planning guys uh, are running the show. Uh, the fiscal authorities, the governments, uh, as well as the central banks, they work together and they are running the show. And this is what it, what it is. We lose our freedom because when they do that, uh, you get a lot of um, uh, unpleasant uh, surprises uh, that, um, that comes out of market mechanisms that are still to some degree working. And of course, those unpleasant surprises cannot be, and therefore they manipulate and they intervene more they regulate more and they dictate more, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the path we are going. Usually in a situation like this, when you go through history, you usually end up in hyperinflation and then, uh, and then a monetary reform. Uh, the demographics we have, it's very difficult to create the hyperinflation. They have tried now for some years. Um, once we get up to three, four, five percent of inflation, if they can achieve that, then uh, there is a chance that we could have a much higher inflation when the central banks begin to directly finance uh, the governments. Uh, as the Brits uh, have announced, they, are, they will do or they are doing, uh, and some others as well. Brazil, I think, is another one. So. The vehicle, the structurally weaker economies like Brazil and Turkey, etc., they will most likely run into a hyperinflation. I'm not sure the industrialized economies can achieve that. What is more likely, uh, in my view, and, and I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, sure about that, I think they will at some point try to get rid of uh, cash money, um, paper currencies, uh, make all the money electronic, and then they can guide us through monetary reform. We do not know how it looks like, but uh, the bottom line of that will be that a lot of people will lose a lot of money. <laughs> that's, that's, that's for sure. Uh, those who uh, are stuck with nominal, with nominal uh, investments, they will lose a lot of money. Um, those that uh, are invested in real assets may do better uh, or will do better, but they may, will also lose money. Uh, so I think there is no winner coming out of this. And if you knew exactly what they would do, the authorities, and you did the right thing, and you came out as a big winner, I guarantee you that all the profits you made would be taxed away by the authorities. So there, there is no real winner coming out of this. All you can do is lose less than others. That's, uh, that's how I see it uh, over the long term. And, and I think the, um, the situation is not just economic. You know, it backfires into the social arena, of course. It becomes very political because the policies that, that they are applying are really uh, creating a bigger, an ever bigger rift between the haves and the have-nots. And this leads to ever more socialist policies and redistribution policies, et cetera, et cetera. And that um, in, in turn makes uh, the whole system less efficient uh, and makes um, the whole economy less prosperous. And therefore, we are all losers. We end up um, in, a, in a race to the bottom, uh, so to speak. 
And, and this is along the lines I'm thinking, but I do not know exactly what the exact next steps will be. I mean, the next steps next year, I think, will be a lot more fiscal support. That's what I expect. And I think monetary policy will remain easy for some years. Uh, so that's the combination for the next few years. And, what these, and, and then you have to mix it up all on a geopolitical uh, situation that is not uh, very stable and is in flux. And you have to fight uh, between the Chinese and the US. And potentially, if Trump gets reelected, I think he will take on uh, Europe uh, next, in, in the next term. Um, it's probably less uh, dangerous if Biden gets elected, because Biden will take the US to the European socialist model, eventually. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, then the risks of, um, of uh, tensions is probably less. But I, I think there is a, a move away from the globalization uh, trends that we have had. Uh, we have the movie running backwards. We have a regionalization. I think China has realized that uh, it, uh, it doesn't make a lot of friends when they uh, treat the rest of the world as aggressively as they did. Uh, so I think they are focusing for the short term, next few years, they are focusing on Asia uh, to strengthen their position in Asia, to make sure they can integrate Taiwan, which uh, uh, could play havoc with uh, the markets and geopolitics. Uh, but they need the semiconductor industry that is located in Taiwan. Um, and I think the U.S. is uh, also turning inward. Uh, the big loser in all of that is uh, Europe. Uh, Europe is uh, the most exposed to exports. It is a large net exporter. And uh, it's getting squeezed by both, by the Chinese and by America. And I think America will um, not tolerate, even Biden will not tolerate the trade surpluses that Europe is running against the U.S. So they will try to bring the dollar down to a level where the euro gets higher and then the trade surplus disappears, more or less. So, and if the trade surplus disappears, it is a deflationary shock to the European economies, and, and then you have the risk again whether they can stay together in that misconstructed EU and Euro, etc., etc. So there is a lot of moving mm -hmm. parts mm -hmm. in this whole scenario, and I think for macro guys, it's going to be fantastic five years with some very big moves, but one should not have um, firm preconceived ideas what exactly and when exactly he has to apply as a trade. I, I think you have to be very open-minded. You have to think through several scenarios and then be ready when the opportunity appears to shoot sharp. The problem with all of that is that you play that in markets that may not stay free markets yeah. anymore. And therefore, the logical consequences that you would expect in markets may be prevented by government intervention, be it market intervention or regulation intervention or whatever. So that's the tricky part of it. That the game is not the game that plays to the same rules over the next five years as they are in place today. The rules are going to be changed constantly. And that makes it so difficult. Well, I think all that's left is just to say thank you and wrap that up because that was uh, that was extraordinary. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's 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 it's. I mean, what a fantastic uh, backdrop for this discussion. And there's so much that I think we can we can dig into there. I mean, that, that was a really a beautiful way of framing this whole discussion. And so many things that I really want to unpack with that. And, I, and I, I'm going to try and go back to the beginning, work my way forwards. Otherwise, we're going to get stuck on the dollar, which is one of the last things you did, and, and, and work it backwards, which could be tricky. So when you talk about the rules changing and you talk about um, how th this free markets are under threat, I, th I think 
anyone that, that has spent any time watching this can see that that uh, is now a very real threat. How should investors think about that in terms of things they can do, signs they should be looking for? I mean, is there any way to, to maybe move yourself higher up the tree so that when they start pulling all the low-hanging fruit off, you've got a few more layers between you and the government? Well, it depends. It depends what sort of investor you are. You know, if you are a benchmark uh, relative performer, then I think it's relatively easy because the benchmark is changing and the rules for the benchmark is changing. So that doesn't affect you as much. If you are an absolute investor, as most private individuals are, family offices are, uh, and then it's very tricky because uh, uh, you have no other, if you want a certain return, you have to move up the ladder of risk. Yeah. Uh, and and I think uh, you can move, you, you have to move to riskier investments, but you should stay with quality or at least what is perceived as quality and has a certain liquidity in the market um, because if you are in less liquid investments, those could get very illiquid or totally illiquid and then you are stuck. And that's the worst thing that can happen to an investor or a speculator. So I think you should uh, stay with large cap um, equities, uh, with some of the commodities and actually, I think commodities will probably be the least affected by the interventions uh, because they are not really system relevant. Uh, if equities go down by 50%, it may break the system. Uh, if commodities go down uh, 50%, that's not the case. Therefore, I think commodities are probably the safer bet uh, if you have a firm view of where the commodity should move to. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite constructive on, on agricultural commodities. The commodity sector has been out of favor uh, for virtually 10 years. And I think it's bottoming on a secular basis, not because I think uh, we will have dramatic demand uh, in, in the next few years, but I think there are problems with supply and uh, it's probably an asset class that seems from a regulatory standpoint and from a systemic standpoint less affected than other assets and therefore capital could feel uh, safer uh, moving into those into those commodities like uh, like uh, uh, the food uh, part i like the food part a lot because i I think the climate will uh, turn cooler and not warmer, and uh, that is not very good for um, uh, harvest uh, results, etc. And uh, the world economy, uh, the world population is still growing, but it's not growing by much, and therefore there is a steady growth of demand for food, and therefore I see higher prices. So in the next five years, I think uh, food commodities could be fantastic. Felix, if we see the governments do what you suggested, which seems like it's about as sure a thing as we can we can guess at, um, I would think at some point bond markets would start to maybe get a bit concerned. I mean, obviously, you're talking about m- more supply. Um, and of course, the central banks will monetize some, some amount of that. Do, do you think it will cause a, a problem in the bond market any time in the next year or so or is that unknowable or too far in the future to worry about or how do you think that dynamic might play out um i have been a bond bull since 1981 (laughs) and uh, i wrote the piece in 81 uh, the buy of a generation Um, uh, i think about two months or so ago or three months ago i wrote the piece the sell of a generation so i think the big bond bull is over I uh, I do not see bond yields rising dramatically yet. Of course, they could double easily. I think there is an upcycle coming next year because I expect more fiscal stimulus. And as more fiscal stimulus comes, it means more supply. And I think um, 
the supply will be eaten up by the central banks uh, to uh, to a very large, if not all, uh, part. Uh, but the credit quality of the borrower goes down, and therefore you have to price it differently. And therefore, those who can move away will move away. And therefore, bond yields next year, I see pointing up. I do not know exactly how the next five years develop, but I could see one or two cycles at relatively low yields, let's say 10-year treasuries between zero and, uh, and three and three percent or, or three and a half percent or so, or three and a quarter, I think was the last high point, uh, up and down. Uh, but at some point, we will break through on the upside. Uh, the, the generational cycle is turning. We are in a secular bottoming process now for some years. Uh, bottoms in yields are saucer type of bottoms, whereas um, peaks are spike peaks. Uh, usually, uh, and therefore I, uh, I'm very bearish on bonds longer term, uh, but I have not put out my shorts yet. Um, I have reduced my long-term holdings, and I have shorter duration, and I have only U.S. paper because the yield is still more attractive than elsewhere. Uh, except for emerging markets, but I I don't want to move to emerging markets because I feel that um, the liquidity there may at some point very quickly disappear. So yes, I'm bearish on bonds. I think next year is a bear market in bonds, and then we will see what that does to the stock market because in the stock market, you know, when you have rising bond yields, uh, usually. Uh, stock prices um, for value stocks go up, but for growth stocks go down. And, uh, and, and we have now this structural change, you know, we, we have the big discussion growth versus value. And I think what uh, most people didn't quite uh, understand yet is that this lockdown uh, due to the pandemic or what they call a pandemic uh, has really accelerated structural changes that have been in place before. And we made a quantum leap uh, towards more online retailing, uh, less uh, mall uh, retail shopping, um, less commercial offices, more homework, uh, home office work, and things like that. And, and I think those changes are permanent. They are not temporary. They are permanent to a pretty large degree, not to the full degree we saw at the height of the crisis, but to a very large degree, maybe half of what we have seen. And I think uh, as long as interest rates stay low, capital flows to those structural winners that are perceived as beneficiaries in a new world. And, and, and because interest rates are near zero or at zero, you can pick any PE you like, as long as the market believes it's, it's continuing. Uh, it's like uh, Japan trading at 100 in 1990. You, you know, it, it all changed when, uh, when the central bank hiked rates for the first time, and when the companies involved had to start repairing their balance sheets, and that is an important item. You know, right now, I think the balance sheets of the corporate sector uh, is in disarray. Uh, and there has been a lot of damage to a lot of uh, balance sheets of a lot of corporations. And, uh, and I think it's very clear that uh, the CEO must repair the balance sheet. The corporations must repair their balance sheets. As they do that, they have to cut costs, they have to cut uh, marketing, they have to cut uh, advertising, they have to cut labor, uh, they have to cut inventories or whatever, they have to cut costs. As they cut costs, they, cost, they cut income. Uh, as they cut income, you get a, a much higher permanent level of unemployment than we had in the years before because of the structural changes. And therefore, I was talking about an economy that has first 
uh, hiccup uh, bounce from the low and then it, it keeps retarding because the corporate sector must continuously cut costs maybe for two years or whatever. And therefore, the fiscal support must come in in a bigger size to push the economy further up. And then you create, in some areas, you create supply problems because uh, some of the suppliers are gone. And then you may have some cyclical inflation. And if the Chinese, which have always cut export prices, if the Chinese would change and would raise export prices because those corporations are in weak financial conditions and need better revenues and therefore could raise prices. Then, of course, you have a double effect that could raise inflation next year and then you have your bear market in bonds and this could be very beneficial to value stocks, but it could really hit the growth stocks very badly. And, uh, and usually the growth stocks, when you look at the past uh, uh, periods, usually you have a two-year run in the end to the peak. And actually, it's about two years by late this year, and you can be off by six months or so. So I think sometimes within the next six to nine months, uh, the growth stocks will most likely peak I'm not quite sure whether the current uh, sell-off or correction that is ongoing is just the mini correction we had in 99 before the final run to the peak, uh, or it is already past the peak. I, I tend to the former, uh, that we have another attempt uh, maybe early next year or so uh, to the upside, and, uh, and that would make the peak. Uh, and after that, you have value stocks outperforming growth stocks, and then it remains to be seen what it means for the indices. Indices that are very heavily weighted to growth, like the S&P or the NASDAQ, will not do well in such an environment, whereas the DAX or the Nikkei index are heavily value-oriented and weighted. They could do much better. That would mean that we are coming when growth value changes in favor of value, it's the end of the outperformance by the U.S. stock market. You see, because all the other indices in general are more value-oriented, maybe with the exception of Taiwan and, uh, and Korea, yeah. where there is, those indices are also very heavily weighted in, uh, in growth and technology. So we are coming to a very interesting point where important macro calls um, uh, become, become valid. And, uh, and I think this is the next big call, the, the call from growth to value, and it will most likely happen in a down market and not in an up market. And, and once that happens, uh, most people miss it because they will be concerned and, and, um, and uh, you know, carried on by working on preventing losses with their baby darlings in the portfolios that are heavily represented in the portfolios and not so much on focusing what should I buy. Uh, usually uh, leadership shifts uh, take place during down markets. So I think we could have a, a quite a good down market, whether it is sort of a short-term occurrence, let's say 30, 40% down or something like that in, uh, in three months, and then it's over. And then uh, you get the new leaders coming up and uh, going to new highs, whereas the former leaders uh, begin to lag and fall behind, et cetera, et cetera. I do not know exactly, but I think an important macro call is coming up and it has all sorts of implications for the world. It goes together with the bond market call. It probably goes together with a, a dollar call. Uh, it, uh, it, it goes together with a index call on the S&P and NASDAQ. 
So it's all sorts of things coming together. It's all the same trait. Is there a key to that? that you, when you when you look about this, is there anything in particular that you think is is the key to that whole trade coming into focus? Is it the dollar? Is it the bond market? What do you think it might be? The, I think it's the bond market. Okay. I think it's the, the US bond market um, uh, more than the other bond markets. Uh, and I have uh, said once you break... 70 basis points on the 10-year, at the same time you break 160 on the 30-year, together it's probably the important turn and that's probably the trigger. Right. So we have broken the 10-year marginally uh, and uh, and the 30-year has not broken yet. Uh, it, It may break marginally and fall back into the range before it really breaks out uh, sometimes next year, I believe. I believe it's probably next year. There's a couple of things I want to kind of wrap in, uh, if I can, because um, there's so much to think about in what you just said. But when, when we talk about the, the bond market um, getting out of control and we talk about some of the steps that uh, the authorities are going to have to take, do you see them mandating... Uh, treasury holdings do you see them mandating that pension funds need to up their treasury holdings because the what something here doesn't work you cannot have higher rates with the amount of debt we have because the whole system will break and at the same time it's gonna the, the longer this goes on the more debt that has to be issued the central banks are going to struggle mightily to absorb all that so they have to find someone to take that debt on so do, do you think that we're going to get into that fairly soon where where governments start to say okay there are levels you need to hold in your portfolios no, I think uh, in the first step, it's all central banks that uh, they take up the paper. Uh, I think uh, in the next step, later on, uh, you will get those mandates. Yes. And that's part then of the new game, as we discussed uh, before. Yes. When you say, I mean, this is all tied together, but when you describe the situation that could <clears throat> argue for uh, sort of structurally more unemployment, and given the Fed's new, the Federal Reserve's new jihad for you know targeting unemployment very aggressively, and and they and they're more willing to let inflation run hot. It seems to me that they are going to be required to be even more activist potentially, especially when you layer in the fact that the government's going to issue more debt because it's going to be bigger from a fiscal side. So it, it sounds to me like these central banks are going to be actively um, uh, not only printing money and buying bonds to finance the deficits, but they might have to even up their QE to try to get the employment down if the bond market rates start to try to back up a little bit. It, is, does that seem logical to you? Sure. By the end of this decade, I would say that the Fed's balance sheet is probably at 40 or 50 trillion or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! It's basically, you know, uh, <laughs> we become the J. We come BOJ. I, I, I think, uh, Grant, we talked about that at another we instance, and I said at the end of the day, the debt of the system will end up on the balance sheet of the central banks, and and that will only be prevented if you change the rules such that you force pension funds and, and insurance mm-hmm. companies, whatever, to take it up. So, uh, yeah, that's the way we are going. Somebody has to pay for it. And the easiest way to pay for it, the pension funds can probably not pay for all that right. because they, are, they don't have that much money and they are not that liquid. But the central bank can create the money. And, uh, and if you create the money and the money, um, you know, most people think when you create money, when a central bank creates money and injects it to the cent- to the banking system, that creates inflation. It, it does not because for inflation, you have the banks to lend and borrowers to borrow or to, to make a transaction uh, in the real economy and uh, and only then you can get inflation in, in a in a in a bigger way. Uh, other than that, it stocks in the banking system the money, and it then gets arbitraged into all sorts of assets, but not into the real economy. 
and, and that's important. Therefore, I think they will first move the way they have moved so far, uh, just bigger, and, and step by step, they are moving uh, towards a more um, directed, directed system where they tell the players what they have to do and what the rules are. You know, yeah, Felix. As as this this most recent phase that the pandemic has triggered of of kind of uh, balance sheet expansion by the central banks has has picked up pace. You know, people have been estimating. Oh, yeah, sure, we're going to be at ten trillion by the end of the year. And now we're talking about a world where at the end of the decade, possibly forty to fifty trillion dollars. If we if we try and imagine that world, which which seems such a difficult thing to do, but if we reach that point. What does the world look like? What does the dollar look like? What does gold look like? What does oil look like? I mean, obviously, your commodities play will should perform spectacularly well if we do end up in that place. But what are things like uh, the dollar and, and gold look like in, in that world you just described? Well, you know, the dollar in in uh, measured in its own way will decline. Uh, measured relative to other currencies, is it's another question yeah. because it's always takes two to tango yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, therefore you have to measure the dollar against other regions and uh, of course the dollar here goes down a little bit against uh, the euro and maybe the euro goes up to 125 or whatever uh, at some point uh, next year uh, that is possible but the euro is a misconstruction and if uh, the euro goes up to 130, let's say 130. Uh, then the trade surplus um, uh, is cut in half, if not more. And then uh, the European economies uh, go into a deflationary uh, condition. And, uh, and then when you have a deflationary condition, then the, the pressure uh, inside the eurozone will become dramatic and then the question is up to what point are the northern states willing to finance the southern states that have not really improved much during the past or since the currency is uh, is um, active so so therefore uh, there could always be big moves both sides because there is no sound currency right. anymore. In the past, we had a strong Deutschmark that had Germany had its house in order. That's not the case anymore. We had a strong Swiss franc because Switzerland had its house in order. The house is in order, but the central bank is going wild <laughs> because because the central bank is is a, a prisoner of um, the ECB, uh, and and if the euro declines too much and too fast. It destroys uh, the Swiss export industry, tourism industry, etc. So it's it's all interconnected, and therefore I do not see a catastrophe of the dollar against other currencies. Although any major reserve currency has always declined, that was the case with the British pound yeah. before, and before that with the Dutch guilder, and and all that. So that's the normal way. But I do not see, uh, like in the 70s, a big decline of the U.S. dollar against other currencies. I do not see that. Uh, the dollar is maybe um, overvalued by 10% uh, and the euro may be undervalued by 10%. So the big moves are not there. The big moves could come when some countries move to currency controls mm -hmm. because they cannot handle their situation and what's showing up and maybe uh, money tries to flow out and it creates a balance of payment crisis and to not lose the money, the capital, they may close the doors because if they lose the capital, uh, it implodes the banks, you know, because the banks lose the deposits. It's, it's, all, it's all interconnected and, and in that sense, the European situation is very interesting because the European stocks are all trading below book value yeah. and some are trading at uh, 40, 50% of book. Um, if you believe book is right, you know, but let's assume book is right, they trade below that. That means they cannot issue 
uh, new uh, equities. They cannot raise capital, equity capital. It's too expensive. Doesn't make sense. So you recently saw the European Central Bank is already at negative interest rates. They can, which is which is punishing the banking system. By the way, uh, if they if they cut rates further and lower it further down, they punish the banking system even more. So they cannot lower rates anymore. Uh, you know, they misused the tools of cutting rates in a situation where they should not have done it. It was a dumb thing. That's Draghi and his crew uh, because they wanted to save a misconstructed currency. Uh, now, what the ECB did was they lowered the leverage ratio, which means uh, they need less equity capital underlying for certain for certain um, balance sheet items. And you know, it, it's basically saying uh, if you don't have enough equity capital, you can leverage more. You know, you can leverage more. You, you know, it's. I mean, it's. I've never seen any dumber thing than this. But this shows how desperate the situation is. And, and, and we will see many of those things. And therefore, let's say the Spanish banks are probably the worst banks uh, in Europe. If the European economy at some point weakens, uh, there is a risk that Spain will lose a lot of capital because the capital flows away because there is a bail-in clause. Yeah. That means if you are a depositor, uh, with, the Spanish, with the bank in Europe, in the Eurozone, and the banks could get in trouble. The bank could use your deposits and turn it into equity capital. So when you see that risk is going up, the capital runs away. And therefore, at some point, we may see capital controls to prevent capital from moving out to save the banking system. And at the end, within the next five years, the major European banks that are system relevant will be nationalized. There is no way out. There's no way out. And when they nationalize the banks, they usually do not do it not at the much higher price, but usually at the much lower <laughs> price. <laughs> Well, all of that sounds like it would be a bullish backdrop for the gold market. Yes. I mean, the gold market uh, is basically a barometer uh, of uh, the trust and confidence in our authorities and in our system. Uh, and if uh, that trust uh, goes down, the gold price goes up. And we have a situation where interest rates are negative, real interest rates are negative, and I think real interest rates will stay negative for years to come, must stay negative, otherwise you cannot support the system. And, uh, and as a result, this is bullish for gold on a major trend basis. Of course, you can have shakeouts, uh, temporary shakeouts, etc., cetera, uh, from time to time, the big run in gold usually comes in the last uh, two, three years of a secular bull market. Uh, and it's usually because uh, the investors uh, uh, buy gold, not because central banks or anybody else uh, or the normal, the normal purchases by the Indian savers or the Chinese savers. It's when they begin to fear that the system could fall apart and they could get trapped, and then they run to gold. And therefore, I'm, I'm very bullish on a major trend basis, and I think gold mining stocks are options on the gold price because they have a lot of gold in the ground. And, uh, and that gold at the height of the, the bull run and, and near the peak uh, people will start about how valuable those assets in the grounds are, you know, and and therefore I, I'm on a major trend basis, I'm quite bullish. My the technical work is not so bullish for the medium term. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's overboard, it's uh, um, momentum oscillators are uh, wrongly positioned. Uh, so I, I don't like it 
for the next few months, but um, but on a long term basis, you have to own it. Yeah, you know, Felix. Next five years, Felix. It's funny um, as the last I don't know how many years have unfolded. I, you, you can't help but get this feeling at every turn that, that that the entire system is reaching that point where, as you said, there is no way out. And I think what you what you've done here is is really articulate better than anybody I've heard in the last decade just how fragile the system, for want of a, a less simplistic word, is. And one of the things that um, obviously wasn't necessarily a big problem at the beginning of this this kind of last decade. But certainly since 2016, 20, maybe 2016 in America, maybe 2012 in Europe, uh, a problem that has, has increased in, in, in its size and its importance is, is geopolitical tensions. And, and not just international ones, but uh, you know, interstate ones. And obviously we're, we're heading towards the US election um, in 26 days now, I think. Um, and clearly that has the potential um, for all kinds of, of of deleterious effects in the aftermath of that. So as you look forward to that, how are you thinking about this, both in terms of the overall outcome without, you don't need to make a prediction. I mean, none of us know that, but, but things you might want to hedge against the, the, the possibility that we could have, you know, a lot more domestic unrest in the U S how are you looking forward to that? Well, I, I, I really don't think it matters much who will be president in the next Sadly, four you're years. probably right. Uh, um, I I thought that after 24, if Trump would get re-elected, we would have we would see a U.S. president that who is left uh, from Bernie Sanders. Uh, that was my expectation anyway. Uh, the society is so divided. Um, the rift between the have haves and the have-nots are more extreme than in Brazil. When you look at the statistics. The Gini effect, the Gini factor, and all those things. Uh, the U.S. is more extreme with those excesses than Brazil, which is already quite excessive. Uh, so it's a it's an explosive it's an explosive situation, and Trump uh, has probably a lot of followers among the lower middle class, middle class and lower middle class, not among the very poor but the lower middle class, and, uh, and if they do not get what he promised, they turn to the left. Uh, and, and when you look, I recently saw a, a survey in the U.S. among um, age groups, and the age group um, 18 to 29 years, they favor socialism more than capitalism. And when you see things like that, you know, there is a big turn. And the zeitgeist, as I call it, the pendulum is swinging much more toward the left. I mean, uh, Trump is not a right-wing person. Trump is a, is a nationalist and, uh, and, and has some socialist um, uh, things in his program, like uh, spending like crazy. So that's a populist. Uh, socialist, but he caters to the conservatives uh, in his talking. But actually, uh, he just continues what all the other presidents have been doing. They ruin the finances of the government in the long run. You know, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, it, it is a continuing trend, and uh, the trend is accelerating. And you can pick whoever it was, except for Bill Clinton, who uh, had the luck that Greenspan was pumping it up for him and it created a lot of uh, tax revenues. But other than that, in every other president has an accelerating trend in debt. And, uh, and that's the normal, the normal trend of a democracy or what they call a democracy. It's not the real democracy, but that's what they call a democracy. So uh, I, I think the, the difference between Biden and Trump will be how uh, they act internationally, not so much nationally. Nationally, we know um, uh, Trump will keep tax rates low. Uh, Biden will raise tax rates for the wealthy. Uh, of course, that's a difference. Maybe even raise tax rates for the corporate sector. Uh, so that may make a marginal uh, difference. 
But the main difference is how they will behave internationally. Biden will probably get the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Treaty. Uh, he would still be um, confrontational with China, but confrontational to and, and more goal-oriented to have a deal quicker instead of going for the home run like, uh, like Trump was trying. Uh, I'm glad that Trump uh, brought the issue up with the Chinese because nobody else did, and it was about time. Uh, you know, you have to tell, uh, if somebody doesn't behave well, you have to tell uh, that things have to change. Uh, actually, every nation coming up, when you look historically, has behaved like China, even the US, uh, you know, at that stage of development. So it's a normal thing, but you have to tell them, listen, this is the limit, we don't accept it anymore, you have to change. I think Biden would probably be more pro-NATO um, and, uh, and uh, could probably work better with the European socialists uh, uh, mm. <laughs> because his team will probably also have some uh, keen socialists, yeah. uh, you know, as, as members, and therefore the, he, they could work better with Europe. Uh, Trump has a problem with the Europeans and vice versa. Um, so I, I think it makes marginal differences. But when you look at it, uh, I think geostrategically, uh, we are in a multipolar world that is in flux. You have a challenger coming up, uh, challenging the dominant hegemon. Uh, that creates problems. And, uh, and, and, and you know, Thucydides... Uh, uh, wrote that uh, over 2,000 years ago, uh, then you have a problem. And there is going to be um, further tensions between China and the U.S. And what it all does is, uh, economically, the movie of globalization is running backwards. So we have uh, different supply chains. There will be dual supply chains, one for China and Asia, and one for the rest of the world, and things like that. And at the end of the day, it will probably mean we will be less efficient, uh, less productive, and less prosperous. Uh, whether we can distribute uh, this evenly <laughs> throughout our societies is another question. You know, the windfalls of, uh, of globalization was not spread mm. out evenly. Uh, there was a, a, the big windows were the upper 1% in the Western world and the new middle class in the emerging world. And the middle class in the developed industrial world in the West, they were the big losers. Whether they would become the big winners, I really doubt. And if they do not become big winners, then you will have revolutionary type of attempts. Um, and, and, and these attempts may lead to cessations. I would think that 20 years from now, we will probably have more nations in the world because some nations will split apart, some regions will go away. It's not even sure whether California will stay a U.S. Uh, state. You know, it, it, could, it could easily uh, move away. It's probably the seventh or sixth largest economy in the world. Uh, it, it could do that. And we do not know that. This is uh, all in flux, and, and we have to prepare for that. We have to be prepared, not that we are shocked. Uh, all of this um, means that financial markets have to adapt to the new situation, and these adaptions will probably bring on much more volatility than in the past. Yeah, I, th I think volatility is, is perhaps the one thing that, that we can count on. I, 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 there's one more thing I'd love to ask you about uh, while we've still got you. I'm conscious of your time, but... Um, when you look at the disconnect between um, what the stock market is doing and what the real economy is doing, um, it, it's for me, I, you know, I struggle with it every day. It's just almost unfathomable how the two can coexist. It, are the central banks and the, the amount of fiscal stimulus they're going to throw at that, are they big enough to, to justify the stock market position? Or is there a day of reckoning coming when suddenly the state of the real economy is going to matter to, to equity indices? I don't see that big of a disconnect. Really? Well, that's because, interesting. No, because, because look at the 
structural winners and beneficiaries of what has happened in the last um, six or seven months or so. Um, they are beat up uh, big time. And, uh, and so the capital flows to the big winners. This is economically logical. Uh, and the value and more cyclical stocks uh, have been underperformers. Uh, of course, they have bounced and lifted by the sea of liquidity, and that's probably what you refer to, because uh, the economy is not back to where it was. But most value and cyclical stocks are not back to the highs, and they reflect um, the more difficult and more retarding economy and uh, the economic sectors that are not beneficiaries of uh, this structural change, but, but some are very big losers of this change, and they have been going down. So it's, there is a logic to it. Uh, I'm not saying the valuation is right, right, uh, right, but there is a logic to it, and uh, the valuation is, an, is a reflection of uh, the excess capital that has been pumped into the banking system, which the real economy cannot take up in a productive way. You know, so so there is there is a logic to it. I'm not saying this is a sound situation. It is not, but but there is a, there is a logic to it. Um, sometimes I also understand it only after, right, and not right, before right. the fact. You know, it's it's difficult because the rally has been much more powerful than I expected. I did not expect the rally to be so powerful when it came. I um, I, I, I saw a good low on March 23rd. I even wrote the report, this is a very good short-term low, but I thought we run up and then we come back down again. And uh, so the first part was right, but the second part was wrong. I think a lot of what may have fooled, uh, well, I'll speak for myself and, and, and some other people I've talked to, is um, perhaps the the point that Mike Green has made about the dominance of the of the passive passive investment flows, which didn't get turned off during the train wreck that we had in March, have you looked at this phenomenon much, Felix? And if you have, do you have an opinion about it? Well, it's uh, it's an investment um, fad, and uh, and uh, it is very powerful, you know, towards the end of a cycle of a theme. Uh, cycle. Uh, it's it's ever more powerful until you peak. Mm-hmm. And then when you turn around, it is very powerful on the other side. Right. Uh, so I think this is just um, another leverage built into the markets, uh, the passive investor, the passive investment fed uh, is, is just another lever uh, on the markets, and um, I, I underestimated this uh, uh, myself, I must say, because we, you know, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I come, I come out of a time where we valued stocks and companies, and you mean you like know, businesses? And, and, yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, and and today it's very different. And and what what we should what we should learn is that. When you have a deflationary uh, problem in the system, then the central banks come in and it's not the smooth thing. Then it's just one way to go. It's just one way because they are so afraid that the system falls apart that they overdo it every time, big time. You know, they have to. And, And that's actually those who understand that make the big money in those runs. And I'm sure we will have another deflationary episode at some point uh, in the next few years. And when it happens and it turns, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Felix, look, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been an unbelievably uh, confusing and fascinating discussion. I'm going to have to go and sit in a dark room and think about all this now because uh, it, it really has just been, been extraordinary. So I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time. I'm, I'm only sorry that we won't get a chance to, to play golf this year, you and I, I don't think. That's, not, not, that's one for 2021, I suspect. We'll do it next time. Okay. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Grant. Felix, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Felix. And uh, hope, to see, hope to see you sometimes next year. Likewise. Take care and stay safe in, uh, in Switzerland. Thank you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Whoa. Okay. Well. Uh, you know. <laughs> 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 what? 
<laughs> what, what intelligent quasi-summation can one come up with after that? I mean, yeah. it's it's so we've been so fortunate to be able to catch these thoughtful and successful yeah. investors slash thinkers and catch them on a good day when they, you know how it is with these conversations, you know, you get off on a tangent and it never quite gets going. And I was, while we were listening to this, I kept thinking, I can't wait to listen to this again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's exactly right. And, and th- you know, th- look, this is exactly why when, we, when you and I sat down and started talking about this, Felix is one of the first names on my list. I was always hoping he would do this for us because he doesn't do much of this stuff which is a great shame for, for people because, as, as you've just seen, the, the quality of his thinking and the breadth of his thinking and the depth of his thinking are just remarkable. And, and you know, I've been fortunate to sit and chat with Felix on a number of occasions, and every time I, I walk away feeling exactly like I do right now, it's like, you know, there's so much to think about there. Um, and he just, he just pulls it all together so beautifully. Yes, but there's no way anyone would be able to extract um, the amount of usefulness so to speak, that's there. If we, you didn't have a format like we did, right? Yes. I mean, so there's sometimes there aren't any cliff notes. You have to read the whole book, right? That's, and, a, that's um, a, it's a great point. And it's it's really interesting to have his perspective right after we had Mark's perspective because they both yeah. kind of come at the world from a similar vantage point, and they're both Swiss, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. No. It is. And and you know, Felix Felix has this uh, ability to to hold so many different thoughts in his head and mm-hmm. uh, and to see ways in which they which they kind of mesh into each other in a way that most people I've encountered just don't have that ability I mean it's uh, he's an extraordinary individual and um, you know he's, he's he's a good friend and and a remarkable man I have to say well that was that was a that was wonderful I really enjoyed it well, I guess that all that remains, uh, Bill, is to firstly thank our guest, the great Felix Zulaf. Um, for those of you who weren't familiar with Felix before today, I suspect it's been quite the wake-up call for you. Um, if you if you want to find out more, you should go to his website, um, Zulaf Consulting, which you'll find at felixzulaf.com. Uh, you know, funnily enough, I, I looked and Felix is on Twitter. He has 952 followers. Uh, and I don't think he's tweeted yet. So there's almost a thousand people out there, almost waiting. like life of Brian. Everybody waiting to hear what hear what Brian has to say. So hopefully, <laughs> Felix may just send one tweet out from the mountaintop and keep the people happy. But um, but do but do do check out uh, FelixZulaf.com. Uh, Felix is writing over the years, and you'll find it in various places on the internet. Um, whatever he re- writes is worth reading, no matter how old it is. It's still there's lessons you can take from it. Um, thank you to you for listening to us. Um, thank you for continuing to uh, support and follow us, for rating and review us on the iTunes store. As I said, every week, it, it really does help us. And as always, my thanks to you, Mr. Fleckenstein, for, for doing this with me. It's been uh, it's been a real thrill to do these. and I feel incredibly privileged. I feel the same way. And uh, yes, it's been incredibly educational. All right. Uh, so please follow us uh, on Twitter. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at FleckCap. Yes, he is. And we'll be back with more of these conversations when our brains calm down. Thanks for listening. <laughs> well, that's it. So all that's left is the we transfer, and we are in I business. Can, I, I think I can handle that. I'm, you got uh, that. I'm, uh, I'm getting better at this, you know. You are. It, it, and plus it fills it all in for you, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, right now, basically, the stock market is essentially uninvestable, right? Yeah. Know, we can vote against the policies by owning gold or miners or whatever. You can have your macro stuff, but... Yeah, you can't really make this work. And I did think it was interesting that he kind of called the the fadness of the passive. Yeah. Uh, um, because I certainly can see that. And but it's it's hard to see how it breaks. I mean, I think if we asked Mike, Mike would say, "Well, it can't break." You know, it just yeah, it has, to, it has to just maybe. go till it goes. I always think that at some point they can push things to a place where even what's going on can't quite hold it. And then it escapes to the downside and it feeds on itself. But who knows? Well, that, well that's, why I, that's why I look at this, um, you know, the number of people losing their jobs. How many of those are going to want to tap the 401ks? Because they, yeah. you know, that yeah. kind of stuff that comes out of nowhere and it's like, I need money and I've got all this money. Right. Well, wait, I think, but I think what we need is um, something has to happen from a corporate America unemployment standpoint to stop the 401k flows. 
and probably it might need to happen in the tech sector because that's where probably more yeah. of the younger bodies are going and the younger bodies are all going target date and all this stuff. And of course the, the passive guys keep getting the laws changed to advantage them vis-a-vis everyone else. So it's a, it's a pernicious problem. I don't think it's permanent, but seeing how it ends, I, I mean, I can't, I, I know it'll end. I know it's insane. What yeah. ends that I, it would, would have to be some combination of a, I would think a big unemployment problem in corporate America, but all right, here's my file is done. Let me, Let's as see. long as I got you, I'm going to transfer my file. Yeah. It is in the process of transferring. Beauty. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.